Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by Adam from Adam Young Golf. So today we are joined by Frank Nabolo. Frank, welcome to The Sweet Spot. Thanks. I haven't hit the sweet spot in a club for a little while, so hopefully I can do it now. Well, I appreciate you taking time out of your day. Just so everyone knows, I've been stalking Frank (laughs) in his DMs. I think you followed me like a year ago and immediately I'm like, hey, thanks for the follow. Come on my podcast like a psychopath. But you were busy at the time. Well, I said I was busy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. at, At the beginning, he was like, I don't know about this guy. But that was in the midst of the PGA Tour season. Of course, you're a broadcaster for CBS, so you're busy. And now we're at the end of September, so you got a little off time. So thanks for joining us. No, my pleasure. I've followed you guys. Um, you're lovers of the game. I like the fact that you give the younger instructions a chance. I think some people probably think we're heretics in terms of uh, our beliefs <laughs> on improvement. Thing. Yeah, I think you'd probably be in our camp as well. But I think most people listening to this probably know who you are. But I watched you play when you were having some awesome runs in, in majors at the mid to late 90s. I enjoyed watching you play. So Frank was a what, you went 15 times professionally, Frank? Is that correct? Yeah, something like that around the world. Something yeah, like I won a couple of Saracen World Opens that were in Atlanta that I was very, very proud of. But a lot of people here stateside talk about Greensboro, which was also yep. very important to me. But European Tournament Players Championship, just never got one of the big four, though. I got close a few times. I remember watching you. You were in the final group. Was it in the U.S. Open? Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, 1994, 29 years ago now. Ernie Els went on to win that, so yeah. it was good. There was a good playoff there with Lauren Roberts and Colin Montgomery. What was he, the boss of the moss? Is that what they used to call Lauren? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, it was a shame, really. Everybody talked about him as a great putter, but he won at Bay Hill when it was really wet and long. And in those days, too, obviously, players didn't hit the ball as far, so... You know, you went in with a lot of artillery. When a course was long, a lot of the times the the shorter hitters won because they're used to hitting fairway woods and long irons into par fours. That's exactly what he did at Bay Hill when he went on to win. Yeah, I mean, we'll get into that, how the, the game has changed and maybe hasn't changed. But I think most people recognize your voice because you've been a broadcaster for quite a long time now, Golf Channel and CBS. And the reason I wanted to get you on the show is I can't imagine how hard it is to be a broadcaster for golf. I say a lot of stupid stuff in the hundreds of hours of podcasting we do, so I don't even know what live television would be like. So I want to get some behind the scenes look at what it's like being a broadcaster And I've always enjoyed listening to you because I think you've educated yourself on the modern game. I don't think you've, it doesn't sound like you've accepted everything, but you always seem incredibly prepared to talk about whatever, you know, players are working on with coaches. And I've always appreciated about you in the broadcast because some people, I think when they are broadcasting golf, I'm not going to name names, but some people like kind of shun the newer stuff. And I've always appreciated that you you seem to have a bit of an open mind on a lot of the, the modern instruction, or at least you're, you're educating yourself about it. Yeah, that started, I think, early on. I always had a thirst for knowledge. I was lucky with the instructors who were beside me and helped me all through my career. My first ever instructor when I was 13 was a woman, Gillian Bannon. She was a prominent New Zealand ladies golfer. So she got me into the game looking at it from a different lens. She would get me books on golf course architecture. And then a guy called Alex Mercer, who talks Steve Elkington from Australia, a golf course grows base. So I got a really bad reverb, which is making me sound like I've got three voices. But And he, I remember when I was going to turn professional, I, I actually wrote him a letter 
and just, you know, I was 19, was I too young and all those things. So coaches have been a big part and also some players. I remember going to Europe in the early 80s and running into Mac O'Grady. Mac sat with Mike Clayton and myself, who Mike's a prominent golf course architect now, and went through the way in which he saw the swing. And obviously that was very radical when you think back in the early 80s. So people did call him a heretic, really. But he gave me the book and he gave me, I think it was 48 psychostyled pages. You know, that's didn't have carbon copy then, I think. It was a way to help read the book. And I'm not saying everything's right in there, but it made me look at the golf swing differently. And I remember three or four months later winning the New South Wales PGA. I was 21 or 22. That was my first professional victory. So it was going down that track of doing something a little different as far as the golf swing was concerned. And it's the same, whether I've spoken to a Scott Fawcett, a decade, a Chris Como, a Mark Blackburn, you name it. I've attended a few seminars, whether it's James Rudyard, you know, short game. I think you've got to educate yourself and not just to be an announcer, because if you love the game, I can't play anymore, be it through injuries and the like. But it still doesn't mean that I still don't have a fascination for the way in which the game, I think, should be played. So would you say you were a technical player or was there a kind of progression from being very instinctive when you started and then as you learned more, you became more technical or was it just a case of adding that knowledge and taking little bits from it and still going back to an instinctive style of play? What was your psychology when playing and learning the game? That's a great question, Adam. I'd actually say all of the above. I started off as someone that played a lot of other different sports. So for me, I didn't take up golf till I was 13. So strong enough, played a lot of bat and ball games. So for me, initially, golf was more natural. But then because the ball is stationary and it presented a different challenge, everything else was reactional, it allowed the mind to go down that track where you say, there's got to be a way to be able to control this golf ball. Everything you do before the launch sequence, you should be able to control. And then so I went down that. And sometimes it was a rabbit hole. But you came out on the other side, even if it was the wrong thing, you realized, okay, I'm not going to do that next time. And so I fluctuated between being very technical and then still trying to compete where you just put your player brain on. But I remember having a discussion with Joe Mayo, who's coaching Victor Hovland now, you know, with TrackMan. And I wish I'd played with TrackMan because I was always taught hit down on it. And then I remember Joe saying, grab a driver and hit it in the ground, see how high it goes. You know, we were always told, hit down and make it go up, right? John Jacobs. Oh, this is with the driver you talked? Or oh, all clubs, I suppose, right? No, it was all clubs. But Joe said, if that's correct, you should be out. If heading down makes the ball go up, grab a driver, throw it on the deck and hit down on it. Because that's what everybody says, right? Hit down and make it go up. And I'm like, it makes so much sense. But we were told that. And I work with Dennis Pugh who I thought still is a great coach. And he was sort of Andy John Jacobs. He believed the face was so much more important than the path. Trackman, Lightscope, they proved that. So, you know, I was lucky I ran into a lot of people that were ahead of their time. But at that particular time when I was playing, I didn't have enough evidence to go, yeah, they're right and other people are wrong. I was reading up on you before we started, and I think you actually might have written this article. But I think it was you were at the 1996 U.S. Open and you were watching Tiger hit his driver. And back then, you know, everyone was hitting these like low spinners mm. and you were watching him hit like highish bombs. And, and one of the guys from Titleist is like, yeah, we got the spin rate, right? And you were like, huh? 
Do you remember that story? It was kind of like the revelation that Tiger figured out early to hit it high with less spin before everyone else did. Yeah, that was the first time I'd heard spin rate, for example. So, you know, there was a lot of good instructors, but we all conformed to the same type of thing. And the person from Titleist in particular is Rick Nelson, still a good friend. So I was on the back of the range. I think it was Oakland Hills. And there was only one other guy on the range. It was Tiger Woods there. Obviously, I knew who he was. And that was the year that he got drawn with Jack Nicholas. They considered it the passing of the torch. And, you know, we were sort of taught to hit it a little bit like Greg Norman, like a plane taking off. You know, it sort of came out lower. It peaked. It looked fantastic. But it never really got anything on the other side. So I'm seeing this guy out of the corner of my eye. At that stage, I hadn't played with him. And it's sort of more of a parabolic flight. And it just looked like it was dropping out of the sky. And I said, you know, Rick, what's the deal? And he goes, that's the perfect spin rate. I said, what are you talking about? It's a driver <laughs> spin rate. And he goes, yeah, it's like 2350. You know, he launches at 12 and a half. And I'm like, he's speaking a foreign language to me. I said, that doesn't make any sense at all. And remember, this is wound ball too, not solid ball. And then I'm thinking, well, you know, it doesn't look like it's going that far. And then there was a par five, I think, the next day in the practice round. And, you know, I'd hit like driver two iron or something to it, front edge. And I was in the locker room, you know, lacing my boots, you know, or should I say unlacing my boots. And someone said, oh, did you hear Tiger hit like seven iron into such and such a hole? I'm like, there's no way he hit seven iron. I saw him on a range yesterday. The ball doesn't go that far. And then those stories started to develop. And then you go, well, you know, he's not eight foot tall. You know, I know I've seen some guys that hit the ball a long way. You know, what really is happening? And I asked Rick again, and he goes, it's spin rate. It's launch angle. This is what makes the ball go as far as it could, plus roll. No one had ever told me about the spin rate and the roll. And also now we talk about, you know, launch angles, peak of a shot, stopping power. All all that stuff's now is second thought. But at that particular time, nobody was talking that language. That's so crazy. What were they measuring it with? Do you even know? Like what launch monitor back then could read spin? Titleist had the golf balls that you put like metallic paint on it, probably made it heavier or whatever. I think they did it with cameras. And then there was like a basic launch monitor. I remember I had one in the garage, this big sort of, you know, I don't know, big black box type thing. And you took it out on the range and you had to put the markings on the golf ball. And it obviously wasn't super accurate, but you, you got things like ball speed. You know, you got a rough launch angle, but they had these you know, sort of next generation stuff that was all done at their production sites. And I think Ping were also into it at that particular time. But it was weird because we're all told practice, chip and putt, you know, hit more fairways, all of those type of things. And, and we just try to conform. So, you know, it's a bit like now, you know, you hear trail arm, you know, lead arm, all this sort of thing. You know, the vernacular's changed. And so when you first hear that, it just appears so foreign. And I think that puts a lot of people off. And then once you realize it's, if you get past the language that people are using, it's not that foreign. It's incredible how much we know now. It just takes the uncertainty away from it. You know, I was, I started around when Tiger first came on, you know, 2001, 2000. That's when I first picked up a golf club. So even then for me, it was complete. I call it voodoo. It's just like you you don't know what creates distance. You know, you're looking for a secret position or something, but it's interesting to hear that they were starting on the launch monitor stuff back then. And Tiger was getting the advantages of that. Do you think there's anything, you're around the pro game 
a lot and you're talking to the coaches and the players. I guess it's hard to predict this, but, you know, back then Tiger obviously had this like massive competitive advantage, like his athleticism, the the swing speed, this type of stuff. Do you think there could be anything now that they'd be talking about like 10 years from now? Do you feel like the players are so bunched together now because of the knowledge? Like there aren't many stones left unturned. Like, do you get that sense anymore? No, I think we're in a, it's going to sound weird. We're in a holding pattern because we're in a state of flux. We still have older instructors, Butch Harmon, you know, that generation that is sort of still anti-new technology because they didn't grow up with it. And they, to be perfectly honest, from a financial point of view, it's harder for them to sell it, right? So he's going to stay in his niche and say, I'll just talk to Ricky, get the club here and, and see Ricky's playing good again. And there's very much that way. Or the new instructor has got all his launch monitor equipment here, his putting lab or a sports psychologist. So it, so it sounds very diverse. But because we have all this conflux of information, and I'm going to throw in equipment because every year something new is coming out. Personally, for me, we're not going to take that next quantum leap until we get some sort of standardization, you know, whether that comes through equipment, because then it becomes about the athlete, that what makes them different, right? But at the moment, everybody's going, it's like motor racing, right? I got a better spoiler on the back now. I got better aerodynamics. I got more power, you know, lob wedge, you know, utility clubs, shaft technology, you name it, biomechanics, all these things. So we're playing catch up. It's very fluid. If not long enough, then, you know, for example, I remember going to a seminar and I was never told smash factor for chipping. And, you know, smash factors for driving, right? And then it was explained to me by James, Bridget, like the ideal smash factor for chipping or pitching is one, right? It's like throwing a ball. makes total sense. But at first it seemed weird. So if you don't have a great short game, there's something to do. So you can patch up the holes and finish up with a very, very good game by grabbing things. I think we need to have a period of time because we saw it in previous generations, you know, the advent of the steel shaft. You've got all these great players, Byron Nelson, Ben Hogan. Hogan exceeded out of that group. And then, you know, same sort of thing. Nicholas came along and took it to another level, same equipment. And then everything really changed once we got, you know, metalwood, the ball changed, shaft technology. So it's very, very hard for one player to excel because whatever they're starting off with now in their career, they're going to have to change next year, six months, two years' time. So it makes it awkward to have another Tiger Woods, so to speak. You went through that change, right, with persimmon to metal and the Pro V1 mm. introduced as well. How did you find that personally? It was weird in the sense that you merit or you try to copy the great players that you'd played with when you were a kid. I remember as a teenager playing in the Eisenhower, and I think it was Bobby Clampett, Jay Siegel, Scott Hoke, and John Cook were the team. So that was my first experience really seeing the American player or the American style. They had the ball so much higher. I was playing in New Zealand. We sort of squeezed it out. So then you try to make a little bit of a, a change in your game. And even trying to get the best wooden drivers. I remember getting a Harry Busson driver from Walton Heath. You know, I paid a couple hundred pounds for it. It was the first time I felt like I had a driver that was equivalent to ones that the best players in the world were using. So it took a while just to get standard equipment. And then you're right. You know, you got a bladder golf ball. You're learning how to control that in various conditions. And then the golf courses were different around the world. They weren't just American designers. 
And that's the one disadvantage in our game is that we don't have a standardized golf course. So it's all about adaptation from course to course. So it was a very slow process. You know, nowadays you can be at home. I'm, I'm here in Florida, Lake Nona. I could go on the range if I wanted to. I could go there. I can dial in altitude. I can dial in weather. And you can prep for different places. So, yeah, it was always adjusting. But, but that's all you were doing. The equipment, remember, it wasn't changing. You were just trying to get the best equipment because the best players had the best equipment. So everything was about just catching up. Do you think if you, again, perhaps this is too hypothetical, but I'm just curious. Like, let's say you were coming up today as a young player and had to compete against the current crop of players. Do you think you would have had the same success professionally if you had a time machine and you knew what you knew now? Like, would you do anything differently? I'm just curious, like as someone who started playing in that era compared to what's going on now, like, do you think a younger Frank Nabila would have made it in today's game? I'd like to think I would still be competitive. I think my game would be slightly different. The first thing I would have got was a launch monitor. And like I said, I played my best golf under Dennis Pugh because he was anti-establishment and he persuaded me that the club face was so much more important than the path. Because I'd try and hit a cut. And whenever you were struggling a bit and you wanted to hit a fairway finder, you'd hit down even more. So, of course, the worst shot for that is the pull. You're aiming left. Trevino suffered the same fate sometimes aim left, go left, that's terrible. So you try and do it more and you go through these big cycles where you had to find your game and get it back and piece it together. So I, I think with some of the diagnostic equipment now, you'd know what's right. And like I said, you would get to where you want to get quicker. Chipping and putting, I think, is fine. I, I'm not a great proponent of the lob wedge. I know it's here to stay because, once again, I think it nullifies the additional skill of some great short game players. But I would have grabbed one if I needed it, same way I would have grabbed a utility club. Yeah, and I, I would have done what a lot of the guys do today. I would have patched the holes or what holes that I thought were in my game. Yeah, so you would adapt. How have courses, the way they're set up, how have they changed so that kind of from your era to now? They're too similar now. You went to Europe. I played nearly 15 years in Europe. You went over there and you played in some shitty weather, to be honest on golf courses that weren't built for that. So you had to find a way to minimize the damage of a bad day. You know, you had to you had to avoid the big round. One of the first great players that I played with is a Australian player called Graham Marsh. And he said the goal in the sort of late 70s, early 80s, you know, I was in my early 20s and the 80s, was to have four consistent rounds. Because equipment, you know, the ball spun more and all that, and the golf courses, because they varied, to your point, so much from week to week. It was, it was to avoid the big score, the 75, the 76 that you're going to shoot. Nowadays, because courses are so similar, greens are so similar in speed, doesn't matter if you play in Europe or America or Asia, Australasia for that matter, the adjustments are so much easier to make. Agronomy is near perfect. So you can dial your game up a notch, and now it's about trying to go as quick as you can, you know, really hit the ball as hard as you can and shoot as low as you can because the game itself is a little more predictable than what it was. You would go around in a practice round in my era, if I want to say it like that, and it was a proper practice round. You'd write in your yardage book, second green is soft, third green really firm, fourth soft in the front, firm in the back. That would literally be notes. But agronomy's changed that. You know, you could go to the very, very first hole, hit a seven iron, seven iron goes 185 yards, you'd write it down 185. It'd go 185 yards all week, one bounce stop. And it would do that on every single green. So your approach to your practice, 
you could utilize your time better. But yeah, golf courses themselves are very, very similar now. They just get longer. They get more similar, the rough, less imagination, to be honest. I'm very disappointed in that area. So where would you, if you were, obviously the USGA and RNA have proposed some future potential rollbacks to the golf ball. To be quite honest with you, we're not a PGA Tour hot take show, so we don't really (laughs) debate that type of stuff. But I'm just, you know, I'm wondering from your perspective, like, do you think that's going to help? Like, what would you like to see change in the pro game? Is it architecturally? Is it the golf ball? It sounds like you had some desire to standardize equipment. Like, what would your potential solutions be? Well, it's odd because when you use that word, John, standardize, it sounds boring, right? We're going to stop something. Whereas what I would be saying, even though I'm going to agree with you, it would allow the talent and the better players to come through. And for that, going back to my previous answer, is you need some sort of leveling out so it's allowing the best players to advance. The skill will just stand out. So if you keep making the golf courses the same, which is just another 20 yards and another 20 yards, bunkers are all in the rough. I mean, seriously, what's the point of a bunker in a rough? And I've asked that question for 30 years. <laughs> no, no, but seriously, and nobody has given me a good answer. I've never stopped to think about it myself. I've just always assumed like, oh, yeah, there's a fairway bunker. I've never yeah. stopped to think about that. <laughs> you just nailed it. It's called a fairway bunker, but it's in the rough. So it's not strategic. Basically, when you hit it, you're praying the ball goes in the bunker because it's going to have a better lie than the rough because you put it in the same place. So it's like graduated rough, right? First cut, second cut, fairway bunker. It should be called a rough bunker, really, right? So it shows you where we've taken some of the great architecture and we've just created the sameness, right? So, But to answer your question, with, yeah, I think we've become more like Formula One which is sad because if you look at baseball, softball, I grew up with softball over here, it's baseball. You know, it's still a bat and ball game. The athlete gets better and quicker and they go around the bases and they potentially they can hit it further. Tennis, I love tennis too. The dimensions are still the same, right, which has protected the sport. We've hidden all these innovations by just putting another 30 or 40 yards. So we've actually splintered our own game. We've done exactly what should happen. If the golf course used to be 7,000 and now it's 7,700 yards, the better player obviously is going to be the longer hitter because that's what we're doing, right? You're going to make it longer, got to hit it longer. So we're predicting where we want the game to go. Real estate becomes more and more expensive. Who's going to eat that money? The local member. The local member's not hitting it further and farther. He doesn't have launch monitors. He doesn't have the great coaching. So we're disenfranchising. One of the beauties of our game is that anybody can play it. And pro-ams actually used to be fun. Every now and again, an amateur would pop it past the pro. They would love that. Now they go on a par three. They hit a three-wood from their tee. The pro goes back 40 yards and hits a five-iron. So we've actually created our own demise. And that's sort of what bothers me. I know that there's a, the truthful answer is about an hour long, but the RNA and the USGA, they knew it but they were worried about lawsuits and all sorts of things. And the PGA Tour hasn't exactly helped either. They should embrace the rules because the rules are for everybody. That's what makes our game great. So when the horse is bolted, the term rollback, or it sounds like a negative, right? We've got to bring it back. We've got to bring it back. But really, we should be saying, how did we get here in the first place? And what's going to make the game better? What will actually make it better? People have said longer is more fun. 
So if I take, you've been told that I'm going to take, if I roll it back, you're going to hit the ball shorter. The average player won't lose a yard. You know that. They will not be impacted whatsoever. Golf courses will be more sustainable. You know, it'd be easier for kids to get back in the game. I mean, there's so many positives in it. When I was a kid, you bought brand, right? You bought brand. It's a bit like, what's the diet thing now? The Jenny Craig, right? We're going to sell you on a brand new driver so that you can lose 50 pounds or gain 50 yards, right? And everybody keeps doing it, but they don't change, right? They still got to keep going back to Jenny Craig, right? Get another 50 yards. Another, but it doesn't really happen. But when I grew up, it was about brand. You were a Wilson player. You love Wilson. If there was, you know, it was a tight list or whatever. You bought brand. They still sold a ton of equipment. And they still will going forward, but they're selling Jenny Craig at the moment. And I don't disagree with a lot of what you said. It's just, I had a social studies teacher in high school who left me with this quote. And I always remembered, he said, kids, it was the last day of class. And he was a bit of like a conspiracy theorist type guy, but he had some real nuggets for us. And he's like, no matter what happens for the rest of your life, you can explain everything by following the money trail. Yeah. And he's right. I find the hardest thing about golf when we like compare it to other sports like baseball, like, you know, bats are standardized because no one's marketing Louisville bats. Like they're wooden, like no one really cares. And so much of the golf industry is wrapped up in the marketing of what the pros are playing, which I've always thought is ridiculous. Like I don't care what clubs Jordan Spieth is playing for like a 15 handicap. They're two completely different players, but it is what it is. Like the golf industry markets itself through what the pros are playing and, you know, how many guys are using Titleist balls or ping drivers. So that's like, I'm kind of with you. Like, I think it would make sense to standardize equipment more, but the amount of money that I think the OEMs would potentially like stand to lose from it or be afraid to lose from it, it would just be like this massive battle. And that's maybe why they've ended up on just the golf ball. We are going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. Gentlemen, fresh ball fall is upon us, and you need to be in the festive spirit. Light a candle, get some pumpkin spice, and make sure your balls look nice with the sponsors of today's show, Manscaped. Nature may clear the leaves on their trees, but you'll need Manscaped's help to get you ready for that sweater weather. Get your pants puppies prepared for cuffing season with a trim as refreshing as a fall breeze, by going to manscaped.com and using code SWEETSPOT for 20% off plus free shipping. You all know what it feels like when you're doing a bit of grooming and you cut yourself. It's not pleasant. The new Lawnmower 4.0 with advanced skin safe technology reduces these nicks and cuts to make raking the leaves a lot less painful. Plus, the Lawnmower is a technical masterpiece. It has a 7,000 RPM motor, multifunction on and off switch that can engage a travel lock and a built-in LED spotlight to help you see parts of your body that you might have not looked at in years. Once you've cleared the driveway, the performance package comes in hot with products to cool you down, like the Crop Preserver Deodorant and Crop Reviver Spray Toner. The Performance Package 4.0 caps it off with two free gifts, the Manscaped Boxer Briefs and the Shed Travel Bag. Bring the fall in right and get 20% off and free shipping with code SWEETSPOT at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com using code SWEETSPOT. As the leaves fall, make sure you have it all with Manscaped. When you're hiring for your small business like I have to, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to find the right professionals for your team faster and free. 
And you can always support us by checking them out at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just another job board. It is a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. I know a ton of people who are using it for multiple reasons, and LinkedIn has absolutely exploded over the last few years. There's wonderful content on business ideas, but more importantly, it gives you access to professionals that you can't find anywhere else. Anyone who runs a small business knows that hiring is easy when you can get that quality candidate. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate from LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours. LinkedIn knows that people like me and other small businesses like Adam or maybe you are wearing so many hats and you might not have the time or resources to hire. It's not like all of us can have our own HR department. That's why there are over 2.5 million small businesses using LinkedIn for hiring. If you want to give it a shot and post your job for free, go to linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. I think it's a start, you know, because obviously Titleist and, and a few of the other manufacturers that are very ball specific are going to kick back because they're saying, why are you hurting us? Yeah. Why don't you hit the driver market or the wedge yeah, market? Yeah, someone's going to have to bite the bullet, right? Exactly. <laughs> and I feel that pain. But, you know, hell, you go back to the Roman Empire, right? I'm going to get a bigger army. I'm going to conquer more land, right? Now I've got to get more food. I've got a bigger army again. Now I've got more food, more money to pay the army. Eventually, we're going to self-destruct. It has to go. Everything else is, that has gone down that road finishes up that way. The game will become more expensive. Golf courses longer and longer. You know, And I know it's already happening where I grew up in New Zealand, where you know, there's a lot of courses in a city where they're worth too much as real estate. So what happens is they buy the 100 acres and they turn it in real estate and they say, in lieu of that, we'll build you a golf course an hour further out. So, you know, if you've got young kids and you want to get them to golf, you're going to drive them an hour out to a golf course that's now appears much cheaper, that's probably new, not nearly as well designed, not as much fun for the kids, and then drive them an hour back. And eventually that's what's going to happen, you know. Make golf courses bigger and longer. The real estate's going to be in, in years to come even more and more valuable and easier to just flip the switch and sell it. You feel the rollback is more about conservation of golf courses. I can certainly understand that. In terms of neutralizing the field, you know, I'm a shorter hitter, and one of the reasons I could never ever compete on tour is I just hit it so short. I could never compete on a seven thousand seven hundred yard course. Do you feel? like that effect should get neutralized a little, that it shouldn't be about just bombing it, that, you you know, there should be more opportunity, let's say, for shorter hitters to win tournaments? It's a good question. It's a dangerous one to answer, really, because like boxing, right? A good big boxer is always going to be a good little boxer. So like any sport, to the more powerful, go to the riches. But I think you have to get a balance, right? So where is the balance? In other words... I'm trying to think of the long putter example. Tim Clark, sorry, I couldn't remember the name. Tim Clark, it was the year that Mickelson won 2013 at Muirfield. So the, the long putter was the discussion, right? And Tim Clark, who won the Players' Championship, used the long putter. So I was walking with Tim just a little bit in the practice round just while I was checking the golf course out. And he goes, what do you think about the long putter ban? And I'm like, well, personally, I don't think, you know, I think the putter should be the shortest club in the back. And he goes... All the changes over the last 50, 100 years have always given longer players more power. 
And this is the best argument I'd ever heard for a long part. And he goes, finally, there's something that gives me a benefit. And now that one's banned and the other one's allowed to keep going. So to your point about, I'm not saying shorter hitters are going to win more on all that, but I think you just have to restore a balance. And at the moment, we've always catered to the top end, the people that hit it further and further and further and further. And then we didn't hesitate as soon as the four majors were won with four various different players with long putters or belly putters, we banned it. So they didn't hesitate with that, but they allowed the other part to go. So that's where I say you've got to restore a balance in the game. Would it be a case of maybe through course design, you know, making the rough thicker as you go farther up, bringing in the fairway so it's tighter, so it's much more of a gamble, much more of a payoff if you're, you know, taking that long line in? Or how else do you see it? Because if you roll the ball back, that's probably going to hurt every length of player, right? Well, it should be easier to hit it into a fairway at 250 yards than 270 yards, right? If the fairway is whatever the arbitrary width is going to be, 25, 30 yards wide. If you look at the number of dimples, for example, on a golf ball, how they've increased, you know, 400 odd to allow that ball to go straighter, I think that plays into your argument where now the people that hit the ball 300 yards plus through the air, so that's like 340, that ball goes just as straight. They're not penalized for any errant shot. I remember playing with a guy in Flint, Michigan. First time I ever saw, it was a Callaway ball, Callaway driver, hit a dark hook, and it barely made the first cut. And I'm like, that ball uh, should have been out of bounds. So once again, if you just allow the equipment to only be worked on from straightening out forgiveness point of view, then I don't think there's a single architectural ploy you could use that's going to make the game, I don't want to use the word fair, but better. So like I said, I think if you just restored it a little bit and put it in the player's hands of just say, hey, we want you to be rewarded. So if you are long enough, and you can hit it straight enough, have at it. If you're shorter and you're very accurate, then you should get a reward as well. It's finding that balance. And at the moment, as I said in detail, we don't have a balance. It'll be interesting to see what happens over the next five years. It seems like something is imminent, obviously, like there's going to be some action taken. Let's switch gears here because I'm curious to hear it's become like a sport <laughs> over the last five whatever years on Twitter to criticize golf broadcasts. Yeah, it has. <laughs> and I've seen you fighting the battle. At times. Yeah, at times. I, you kind of veer in and out of it. I can't imagine. It must be really hard to fill up all the... I mean, you've got all these different balls in the air. There's all these opportunities. It's just... It's not obviously, as you said, it's not a standard field of play. It's not like a tennis match where you just have to worry about two players or football, whatever. So I imagine it's much harder than it looks. Can you give us some insights like behind the scenes? You've been doing this for well over a decade now. For the people who seem to criticize golf broadcasts, like how much harder is it than it looks? Like what don't we understand what's going on behind the scenes? First and foremost, I think the viewer is entitled to a he or her's criticism. I think that's fair. I'm the same if I turn on the TV and watch sport and there's something that I don't like, then I'm either going to change the channel or abuse whoever it is on the air. And I did watching the US Open tennis. It's not rocket science, right? You are following a number of golf balls around there. Often people hear the word on tape, meaning you know the shot was hit before. 
And they think magically that each one of us as, as announcers, whether they be male or female, know exactly what that ball's going to do. So we determine whether we're going to sound brilliant and call the shot exactly as it goes. Let's see, he's going to hit high with a little bit of a draw, but you just pass the flag and it should catch the hill and screw back. And then lo and behold, that, that's what the ball does. Sometimes that's exactly what you would say if you've done your homework and you know that particular green. 16 at Augusta comes to mind when they have the hole-in-one pin placement, right? If you hit the bank on the right, you see a whole lot of hole-in-ones. And then sometimes, obviously, some people do, they have seen the shot before, whether they're walking on the ground or whatever the case may be, and, and you want to come up and be smart. I was always told early on, the people that I looked up to and tried to ask for advice, whether it's on tape or live, just call it how you would see it. That's going to offend some people. Some people are going to like it, not like it, but I think that's as authentic as you can be. And also from a viewership point of view, I remember talking to Peter Ellis. I worked with him a little bit when I would do the Open on BBC. And his criticism with American TV was, and this is a quote by Peter, which I agree with. He said, they often put the spaces in the wrong places. So as we endeavor to show more shots on TV now, we condense that. And sometimes you feel like if you're not saying anything, people are going to say, well, we don't need that person, but you know, we could just do without them. So there's a little bit of job insecurity pushing some people to maybe say more than they won't. And for example, like caddies know they're on TV now, so they talk different. What would normally be just stand on it? seven or hit as hard as you want, becomes, well, let's see, there's a ridge, the wind's from the right, and it takes 20 seconds, maybe longer with that conversation between player and caddy. So, so much has changed, and the viewer wants that. The viewer wants to get inside the game, but if I'm truthful, I'm like, well, only half of what that caddy said is correct. You know, the player just wants to know. You know, I had a guy called Basil Van Royen, South African caddy, who was great, and I remember the amount of times when I would play And I felt like I was never in between clubs. Just magically, I was never in between clubs. And then I found out a few years later, he would fudge the number because he knew if you're in between six or seven. (laughs) And he thought, well, six might go long. So he would take a couple of yards off it. I go, this is perfect. This is seven. And either some of the newer caddies don't do that now or they want to sound a little different. But I know I'm not quite answering your question, but the show starts from the truck. The producer decides where they want to go. Obviously, the director is in charge of the cameras, and then we hopefully put the right layer on what it is. And the one thing I will say that, you know, I guess that happens over the years, if you're leading by four, John, over Adam, then I'm going to point out to the viewer, you know, the troubles ahead of John, but meanwhile, the opportunities for Adam, because we are doing a sporting event, and that's what you do. If you're a John fan, okay, what is John going to negotiate? to win this tournament over the last four highs. But if you're rooting for Adam, what are the opportunities for Adam? So it sounds like sometimes you're anti the leader or pro the chaser or whatever the case, but it's, I don't know. It's, I don't think you ever get it right, but it's fun. It's the closest thing to playing golf, but it is radically different because, you know, my job now is not to call how I would play the hole. Adam's just admitted he doesn't hit the ball very far. John, if you're a 340-yard hitter, you know, like I used to use the two Johnsons, Dustin and Zach, right? 500-yard hole, totally different for Dustin Johnson and Zach Johnson, purely by the way in which they hit the ball. So if they both have 200 yards in, it's a much easier shot for 
Dustin because he's probably going to hit three, four irons shorter than what it is for Zach. So you've got to call a game fair for the player and the shot that that player has in front of them, not the way you would play it. I'd be curious to get your opinion on this. So one of the things that I've been playing for 25 plus years and watched a lot of pro golf, like just obsessively watched for a long time, especially during the Tiger years. And I feel broadcasts are meant to entertain. As you're saying, you are trying to provide drama for us, the viewer, with the way you're covering the event, the shots you're showing, the way you you narrate it. And that's, I think, perfectly normal because you got to get people tuned in and staying there. But our show is mainly we're trying to help the average player, you know, get better at golf and most importantly, manage their expectations. And I have a whole chapter in my book that's called the PGA Tour Fallacy. And one of the things that I I try and tell golfers, like what you're seeing on TV, yes, it's real. Obviously, the shots are occurring, but the way it's shown to us, the types of players who are being shown to us and how well they're playing versus, you know, if you watch like an ESPN plus featured group of you get to see every shot of a player now. And I think it's interesting because you could see some players shoot like a 76 and it looks entirely different. And I think what's happened to the average player is like by watching pro golf over the years, they're kind of like subliminally shown a version of golf that's technically not even real for some of the pros. And it kind of messes with their expectations. And like one of my things has been trying to unwind that. Like, do you think any of that's fair? I'm not saying it's your fault as a broadcaster. I'm just saying it is just the way golf is presented to us. No, it's very fair, with the exception of Tiger Woods, because <laughs> no, it has to yeah. be pointed out, the number one thing that people wanted to watch during the Tiger Woods era, myself included, was Tiger Woods. Yeah, that's all I wanted Playing to say. Well. The number two thing that people wanted to watch more than anything else was Tiger Woods playing poorly. So he was the one player that you would see shooting 73 hitting it all over the place. It was great TV. Everybody else, you only saw them play great. And you're right, because there's all those golf balls in the air. And, you know, if you talk to a loose Stagner, for example, he's a very, very good statistician. He's trying to get that message to people. They don't hit it, you know, from 100 yards to five feet all the time. You know, they average 12, 14 feet, top of my head. So, you know, that's radically different what you're seeing on TV. I would also argue when a player is playing well, that stat is different. But sadly, you know, we've gone down this shot link trail where it's an umbrella stat, right? I've talked with the people there. How can we pull out what's relative? Like, you know, how close does Adam hit it when he has a top 10 or better that week? Or how far away does it when he has a miscut week? Because that's what would make stats far more relative. So we use an umbrella stat which makes that player that you see on the screen so good because you set it to five feet, even though he normally averages you know, much worse than that. And you're right, because there's, unless you can show every single shot, who wants to see a nine iron hit to 35 feet, which you know, is not that uncommon? Let's, let's show the almost hole out from 210, even if the guy's too over for the day. So yeah, it's, it's very selective. It's a really interesting point on the strategy. I know you follow Lou. I've seen you tweet out about him a few times. And yeah, it's as a player, you do get this instinct when you're playing well that that dispersion is tighter that week, that day, perhaps. Even mid-round, you can get a feeling that I've got control of this ball for these next few shots. 
and that could affect your strategy definitely It'd be interested to see how strategy evolves from there maybe it's as it goes as you say where you start to take that umbrella of statistics and you separate it into okay when a player is playing well that week when they're feeling better you know they get better stats out of it and changes their strategy that will be interesting to see how that one goes yeah we need to see a high watermark like you know scotty sheffler's had a great year but you know if i was scotty sheffler i would hate the fact too that every week his putting is mentioned and it's hard because you, you're trying to put it in perspective and you're saying statistically the best tee to green in the, in the world right by far so then on the flip side you're going to say he didn't win this week why well putting statistically was you know out of the people that made the cut pretty much last so you're trying to make this second or third or fourth place finish of scotty Scheffler and give it some relevance and say well he was the last in the field in putting but he still finished second or third so you get this sort of warped balance but you're right every other sport there's a winner and a loser and it's not like we're giving medals away to everybody that plays either. We're trying to put our game today or this week into some sort of perspective and say more than Scotty Scheffler didn't win. Yeah, I've actually spoken with Mark Brody about that because for someone like him, he's hitting so many shots disproportionately to like eight to 14 feet for birdie where the rest of the field is just not doing that. And he's going to miss most of those. So that kind of like artificially deflates his strokes gained putting because, you know, if you miss a bunch of 12 footers, you're losing, I don't know, like a third of a stroke every time, maybe a little bit less than that. Mm. So it kind of creates this, like, could he be a better putter? Like, yeah, but he's also probably not as bad as everyone's like bashing him to be. And I wonder psychologically for him hearing that, you know, I see him working with a new coach this week at the Ryder Cup, Phil Kenyon. You know, you just wonder like, does that commentary like seep into the player's head and like kind of become a self-fulfilling prophecy? Yeah, it does. And that's where players get annoyed because, you know, you are trying to call it how you see it. If somebody misses the green, I'll say it's a bad shot. But I say it for two reasons. You can say how the wind got it or whatever, but if the player gets it up and down, it's a better up and down because the previous shot was a poor shot. If you just say, oh, they just missed the green, you know, it's more flat lines. So I think the game itself, and if I was a player too, and I had a seven iron man, flag was on the right, and I missed the green on the left, I'd be furious too. But when you call someone out on the air and go, oh, that's a bad shot, and then you go to the range the next day, you know, it was the same when I was a player. You know, you don't like that because the one shot they showed on TV because, you know, you were playing good that day is the and the announcer goes, that's terrible. And they're like, oh, that's great. You only show one shot and you say how bad I am. So I get it. We all have feelings. But you're right for Scotty and you're right statistically as well. So how do you tell the viewer how good he's hitting it from tee to green, not winning, and then tell him, well, that's sort of where he should putt from 14 to 18 feet? where he hits it all the time. That's where it's hard. That's where our sport is a little different. And that's also where I think it goes into the sameness of the game. You know, I think if Scotty played in the 90s and that he'd still be right now, he'd be the number one player in the world. It'd be the same. He's just playing better than anyone else. You know, the best players every generation have normally hit the ball better than anybody else. They give themselves more opportunity. They look better. Any sport, Novak Djokovic in tennis, they look like they play the game. They look like they have more time. They just seem to have the answers. They just look better than the person on the other side, even when they don't win. Here's another question that I just, it came up on Twitter when I said you were coming on. It's regarding the slow play. People get angry at that, you know, 
golfers take forever on TV and the program's too slow. And one thing they always seem to point out, and we've had Mark Sweeney on the show, and to be fully honest with you, I am an Aimpoint user. I love it. I don't think it's for everyone, but Aimpoint gets like singled out by everyone on Twitter and elsewhere as like the scapegoat for slow play. And we had Mark Sweeney on and he was like, well, obviously he defended himself. He's like, I don't think Aimpoint makes anyone slower. I think slow players are slow who use Aimpoint. They're just slow too. Someone like Keegan Bradley, he pointed out. What's your impression on just like slow play in general? Like has the tour slowed down since you've been playing? Is Do you think it's gotten a little ridiculous or is that something that we're just kind of making up in our heads? No, and it's hard to disagree with anything you've just said. I remember Mark when I was at the Golf Channel and he started Aimpoint before Aimpoint Express. And matter of fact, the Golf Channel got its first ever Emmy for Aimpoint. Yeah, because he was providing the images, right? Exactly. And I remember sitting down with him on many occasions saying, how does this work? You know, and thinking it couldn't be right because he was trying to predict a putt that went in the hole. And so sometimes it would start on a radically different line and you go, well, that's weird. You know, you see this guy aim about a foot outside the right, just miss it on the left. But aim points giving it like five feet up the slope. And you're like, well, that can't be right because this other putt just broke a foot and Billy missed the hole. But he's like, in order for that to go in, it has to go on this direction. And then I remember at Memorial one year, we spoke for about an hour on the side of the putting. I learned a lot through Mark. And then obviously when he changed to the expedited version of Aimpoint Express, I think there's a lot of validity to it, even for the recreational player. But for them, they copy what they see on TV. And sadly, there are some bad visuals. And if, I wish Mark was on the show as well, because I think he'd probably agree. You know, when you, the old rule, you couldn't stand on your own line. And we see players almost standing on their line and whatever. So visually, it looks weird, different to any other sport, right? And you're trying to explain it. And to be fair, I don't think a lot of announcers have really gone into. I haven't done an Aimpoint Express course. That's what I'm wondering. It's like, I mean, you obviously are educated on it. And some people just, you know, look at it like, oh, it's voodoo. My best guess is, is like, no one bats an eye when a PGA Tour player takes two and a half minutes to read a putt with their caddy, with their eyes. They're walking behind it, to the side, just going forever. No one would say a thing. But they see someone put their fingers up in the air and they're like, oh, that's different. That must be why they're taking so yeah. long. And I, you know, I've been using Aimpoint for five or six years and I don't have any affiliation with Mark. I just think it's a good system. It's helped me. I read my pots in 15, 20 seconds. I'm like, if someone's slow, like it looks like they're doing way too, like they're not just doing it the way it's intended to be done. So that's what kind of, I get into these nonsensical debates on Twitter sometimes over it. I'm like, I don't know anything about Aimpoint that would make it slower. It would only make you faster. And the people who argue against me, I'm like, have you ever taken the clinic or read about it? And they, I don't think a lot of people actually understand what it is. And some announcers too, let's be I, honest. I agree. <laughs> but we live in a society now where we're quick to point the finger. So who's the new kid on the block? It's Aimpoint Express for a lot of people at home. So let's blame the new kid on the block. And I think that's really what's happened. To answer the question, you know, yeah, players do take more time now. They play for more money. Greens are quicker. If you go back to the major championships, I got it on my phone somewhere. I, I always keep a screenshot of it. And I think the fastest greens might have been Oakmont, and it was 10 on the stint meter. Sure, Augusta National was like eight in those days. So slower greens is quicker play. 
So you had slower, softer greens. You had less players, to be honest. So if, if you have 156 players, you have 78 off off each side, right? So you have two waves. So it means you've got 38 off each side, you know, split it by three. You've got 10, 11 groups, I think, on each night. They run into each other. So in the end, it's like the expressway. I could jump in my car right now, go 100 miles an hour. I'm going to run into traffic. So then you just go, well, I might as well go the same speed as everybody else. So we've just drip fed it through where what's the point of playing quicker? Because the guy in front's not, and the guy in front of him's not. So we finish up with rounds taking 345, then the next year it's four, then it's 415, and they're progressively gone longer. And if you want to add into it too, if it's a 7,200-yard long golf course that's been lengthened 500 yards, well, how do you play it quicker? i got to walk you know, a lot longer. I was, you know, in Chicago when we had the BMW, the second playoff event. It's a really good golf course. There's a bunch of tees that are 50 yards back. So I putt out, 50 yards back to the tee, 50 yards back. So we're adding yardage, you know, because these golf courses weren't built to be green to tee. All those little things take up time. But, yeah, faster greens, thicker rough, all those things. You can't play quicker and a lot of money. So would you be, I mean, a lot of people have, said, oh, well, why not have a shot clock and actually call people out for slow pay and penalize them? Like, do you actually think that would do anything or that just like shave off 10 minutes? Like, where do you stand on that? Well, sadly, I think you've got to start with a low-hanging fruit, right? What's the point of me speeding up if I'm going to wait on the next stop? Yeah, you're going to run into a par three eventually where everyone's waiting. Exactly. So, you know, why do they put an extra lane on the highway? Because you can't just get people to, so you got to have another lane, then another lane, then another lane. So somehow we've got to be set up where maybe it's 120 players max so they don't run into each other. Now there's holes in front to play in, right? So now there's a reward. I can, If I'm playing quick, I can keep going. I'm not going to wait on the next hole. And then I think the shot goal. And also, once you allow that, peer pressure is huge because if everybody is playing at a slightly quicker pace and they don't have to wait – then the ones that really are slow, if that's the case. See, I think Patrick Cantley has just been one of the villains. He's a bit like Aimpoint, right? Let's blame Patrick. Yeah, he's. I'd say Aimpoint and Cantley are the two scapegoats, yeah. no, it seems. Has <laughs> everybody like literally watched him play all the time and realized that he's not taking any more time than a lot of other players? But it's, yeah, let's make it him. Aimpoint and Cantley, that's the easy way, right? But if you really look at it and see what's happening, they're just he knows he's going to wait on the next hole. So what should he do? Play quickly and then wait for five minutes on the next hole. He's a smart player. I might as well take my time. I'm going to putt. That group is just teed off. I'll get to the tee. I'll be ready to play, and away you go. See, you've got to look at the other stuff first. That's not fun. It's nice to do the gotcha things. Oh, though, hell yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But, but, you know, the caddy conversations, they take longer. Like I said, you throw it all in. Even Aimpoint Express, from that point of view, people should learn to do it quickly. But once again, there's no advantage to do it quickly because I'm going to wait anyway. Yeah, yeah, it seems like there's no benefit to yeah. playing faster unless yeah. you just like playing fast. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Here's another question for you. I was actually at the Memphis playoff event. I don't think I've told anyone on the show. But I'm actually coaching a PGA Tour player for the first time. I was looking around and I see all these coaches. They're just everywhere. And I'm one of them. I'm just like, do you think like the modern players like overcoach? Do you need five people around you? When you came up, obviously, you know, maybe you'd see your swing coach once in a while, but people weren't traveling with their psychologists and their swing coaches. 
and their physical fitness, like their teams now. And obviously the money's gotten bigger. Like, do you think that's just a function of the pressure and the money that you just need more people around you to feel more dialed in? I would add, and it's it provides a level of insulation. Social media, I have my love-hate relationship with it because nowadays I think players use it to control their message, right? They put it out and go, hey, I've got a new driver in the bag. They might not tell you on the range they've got a new driver on the bag, so we've now got to funnel through social media. Well, for example, at, at the Players' Championship, the PJ Tour won't allow announcers on the range. So if you've broken your driver when you're warming up, we won't know that. Right. So we'd have to look at Twitter, something like that. The other events we can go on the range and find out that information. If it's a new club, ask the caddy or the coach or whatever, because you don't want to get into somebody's kitchen when they're about to tee off. But to your point about the coaches, it's a level of insulation. You're controlling the narrative. You're keeping away people from saying anything other than what you want to hear. And, you know, you see it watching tennis, the US Open the other day. You know, the players are coming on with a headset now. I know that's money as well, whether it's doctor, you know, headset, whatever the case may be. And yeah, so you can monetize that. Like I said, you can control your space and control that narrative. And a lot of the times it's just the reinforcement. I, I remember talking to Joe Mayo about he's one of the new instructors and the newer instructors like yourself, you'd get all the flack, right? You know, you were heretics, you were the new Vogue instructors. You guys don't know what you're doing, all this sort of thing. You were looking oh, don't at worry. Computers. I'm not doing any swing stuff. Don't worry about that. I'm not blowing up their heads with that no, stuff. No, no, but you know, you know how <laughs> that's the way the younger instructor yeah. was maligned. And I remember talking to Joe. You can ask him, you know, 15 years ago, and I said, Joe, you, you just got to fight through it, man. As soon as you, you get the right player, you know, they'll start, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? The narrative will change. And it was very frustrating for him as an instructor, as it is for a player, for that, because, you know, if you got rabbit ears and you heard someone said you didn't play well enough or you got lucky or whatever. So I think the younger player of today is just they have the ability. You've detailed why, more money and all that. Would you rather have people around you that are going to put you in a better headspace to play well, whether it's a psychologist or a coach or your trainer, all those things to provide a better version of yourself by the time you get to the first tee? I don't blame them for that, but you know that's the direction the game's going, that's for sure. Side note, we have to get Joe on the show. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm friends with Joe. Adam yeah, and myself have spent, yeah, I've spent some time with him a lot. I mean, I've been watching a lot of his videos lately with what he's been doing with Hovland and the pitching and chipping, which I find fascinating. But he's a truly like different, you know, mind. And I think he's super interesting the way he like sees the golf swing and everything. He's strong enough to challenge everybody, including his yeah. own oh, thoughts. Yeah. And I admire that. Like, he, uh, I think I said earlier on the show, you know, when I was new to track, man, we we're at Olympic when the US Open was on there. And he must have spent an hour with me and we just talked about it. And I just, so I was going over, but why this angle of descent? You know, why? Well, hang on, what is that? You know, the plus or the minus, you know, from the way in which the ball's taken off to the left or the right. Cause I'm like, why don't they just have left and right? Why have they got plus and minus here? And all the things that he just spent the time. So I, I managed to get my rocky ride with Joe, but I have the utmost respect. And I remember seeing him this year at Monterey Peninsula Golf Club. He was with Ben Crane, unbeknown to me. I hadn't seen Victor at that particular stage. I was just checking that golf course out for the AT&T. And I saw Joe from a distance because he's tall. I was about to give his email address away, but, you know, he used to play volleyball. And I go, <laughs> hey, Joe, and he's like that. And he goes, I got a new one. And I'm looking at Ben Crane. Well, Ben Crane's not as old as me, but I know Ben. I'm like, 
yeah, Ben? <laughs> he goes, no. And I know he spent time with Victor in, in Vegas and all that. I didn't realize he was hooking up with Victor again. So we just chatted. Now, I've always found Joe engaging just because he's prepared to challenge. And even if I don't agree with something he says, I'll go away better for it. It'll at least make me think. And then a lot of times I do finish up agreeing. But yeah, he's a breath of fresh air for golf and modern instructors. Yeah, we'll get him on the show, definitely. Yeah, it's like he gives sermons. He's like a preacher. He, yeah, I love he, it. And he just like believes in it <laughs> so deeply. And it's just, it's, yeah. it's actually very entertaining to listening to him. Just the way he like delivers his, I think coaching is mostly about communication. And he's mm. one of the most interesting slash best communicators out there that I've seen. Yeah, this part, Tony Robbins part. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> He's like a Southern Baptist (laughs) evangelist or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, not quite. Well, actually, probably is a cult following, really. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Is your instinct that, like, as we move along and the Butch Harmons of the world, you know, start going into the sunset, do you think – I'm curious if there's still going to be a place for, like, the type of coaching that a swing instructor like Butch does where, like – I mean, Ricky Fowler is a good example. Like, he kind of went – away from what he was doing for a while. And then again, I don't know what he did with Butch, but it was probably more like, oh, you're fine. Just do what you were doing before. And he's like, okay, I'll go do that. And no problem. And just need another, like that simple, like communication being like, we don't need to change the stripes of the zebra. Like, do you think there's always going to be a place for coaching at the highest level? Just keeping it like super simple and not getting into the weeds? Yes, I do. And I hope it never goes away. Tommy Fleetwood went out to Vegas just prior to the playoffs and it was, Deeper hip turn and more extension through the hip, right? Which is something I would have heard 40 years ago with Bob Torrance, Sam Torrance's father, who was a good instructor. Yeah, I think the beauty of our game is it's not just played by the highest level. So because there's a multitude of ways to play this great game, there should be a multitude of ways to try and help people get better, whether they be someone trying to break 100 for the first time, maybe break 80, or perhaps win their first major championship. And because we're all different, a bit like Mike Furyk, Jim Furyk's dad, when Jim was going to go to college, you know, Mike's a club professional. And one of the recruiting coaches said, well, you know, your kid's got a lot of talent, but if I change his swing, he could be really good. So for Mike, it was, that's one college Jim's not going to before he (laughs) went to Ohio. So yeah, I think there has to be a place for that. But I'm sort of all-inclusive. So to me, Butch is important. Every bit as good as you or Joe. I don't like it where someone says, and I think this was the issue with Bennett, Stack and Tilt. I remember when Grant Waite was doing a little bit of stuff with him. It's the marketing, like we've got the secret. I mean, share it. The goal of all of us, whether it's an announcer or a player, even doing the podcast, is hopefully to try and leave the viewer slash player with something more than they had before. I think it's incumbent of us. So yeah, I think it should always be a place for that. Even if it tells you I'm better off with more modern instruction. We try and hit everything on our podcast as well. That's why we called it the sweet spot. You know, I can go down long diatribes about biomechanics and impact physics, but then at the same time, we always try and boil it down to just hit the ground here, control the club face. If you do those two things, you're going to be good at this game. So we try and get all of the areas of golf like you say so we have beginners listening to this we have clearly tour players listening to this as well 
so yeah there's got to be something for everybody and that's not even to say that a tall player has to be mechanical by nature or want deeper information sometimes as you know there's there's probably plenty of tall players out there who are not Bryson DeChambeau's who just want something simple that will get them through the week well that is another player that I miss really because I remember doing some stuff with the golf channel it might have been a live from and I thought Bryson was a very important part of the new fabric because he questioned so much, you know, the, the single length lines, irons. I know Bobby Jones had the same thing all those years ago, but he went down, probably was a rabbit hole, but as he's churning stuff out and digging stuff up, I generally think as it was driving other people crazy, we're benefiting from it. A little bit like Formula One where, you know, we get better brakes on our car, right? People say, well, how's Formula One? Well, you know, your disc brakes and anti-lock brakes, and that all comes from Formula One. So some of that stuff seeps down. And I really do think, you know, for someone starting the game up for the very, very first time, single-length clubs might actually be a good – I don't know, but I never grew up that way. They might be a great way for people to get into the game of golf. It would be simple, Oh, right? I definitely agree with you. I actually think they have a place for – if they're fit properly, absolutely for beginner to intermediate players who haven't played much. Yeah, so I don't think – you know, anything, once again, that makes you question or, hey, I'll try this. And if it doesn't work, that's fine. You're better for it. You know that that doesn't work, but it might work for you. So the, the last topic I'll explore a little bit before we let you go. Appreciate all the time you're giving us. It seems like the last, you know, six months, like there's all these changes in pro golf with the merger or not the merger and like the player, like even the player I'm working with, like I asked him, like, did you have any idea this is coming? He's like, no, we had no clue what's going on. I still have no clue what's going on, you know, trying to figure out a schedule next year. Do you think like pro golf is like an absolute mess or like, you know, lives over there, they're coming back or not coming back? Like, where do you hope it ends up? What would be your hope for pro golf? That's the best question. I've asked that even with people I work with, we're out for dinner in Memphis and I'm like, everyone's talking about what they've just read the day before or, hey, is it going to be a merger? No, it's not going to be a merger. That's wrong. It's going to be a partnership. Let's just change the language. And I said, okay, forget that. What's the best place golf could be in three years? Couldn't get one answer because we're, we're all so reactive now, including the PGA Tour. So I actually like the word that you used. I think it is a mess. And oddly enough, you know, the PGA Tour think that we as announcers sometimes focus too much on major championships, but the players do. And they're the only events right now where you literally can watch all the players in the world. And there was a really good major championship this year. So I miss some of those players. I know the viewer does. Am I a live proponent? To be honest, no, I'm not. Some of my friends, announcers and players work over there or play over there. Personally, I believe in 72-hole stroke play. Do we get it right on the tour side? No, we don't. But I also grew up in New Zealand, and I, I'm aware of the fact that this game is worldwide, not just America-centric. So if I try and unravel it, you can sort of see why we got to where we got right now. Because oddly enough, this is a foreign invasion, so to speak, because it comes from elsewhere, because the rest of the world are hungry for golf and maybe a blind eye was turned to all the other places in the world where golf should be played. So yeah, it's a mess. I don't have the magic bullet. I hope that somehow 
you know, to me, it's like a divorce. And right now we're going through all the paperwork and who's keeping the kids and who's keeping the house. <laughs> yeah, that is yeah. a good analogy. It's the really ugly phase. But then hopefully the lawyers will sit down and they say, hey, there's kids involved here, the future. Can you make the right decisions? And I hope that that gets done. I think it would be cool if they actually leaned into the rivalry a bit. So like I would be compelled as a golf fan. I love rivalries in other sports. Like I love it when, you know, I love American football. I love it when divisional teams hate each other or there's conference matchups. Like I think it'd be cool if they could get like live versus PGA tour events, like get their best, you know, 16 players and, and tour it, like lean into it somehow and give us, I would love to see Dustin Johnson and Brooks and all those guys and Bryson and Cam compete against the PGA Tour guys again. That'd be awesome. So I don't know how that would be legally possible. <laughs> what's going on? But like as a fan, like that was one thing I'd be like, let's, you know, if we have some type of matchup, at least just something where it's not like this complete division. Um, but yeah, who knows what will happen? Yeah, then we'd want it every week, wouldn't we? So yeah, exactly. And, or but, yeah, just like, but it would be something that would be cool. Like you could look forward to maybe a few times a year. I don't know. I'm sure it'd be logistically impossible, but yeah, that's the thing is like the thing that kind of blew me away. was just how much in the dark everyone was and is like, there's just, no one seems to have a clue. <laughs> that's yeah, kind of wild it, for like a major professional sport. Yeah. And you would think that we're in the know with that. And, you know, I haven't seen Jay Monaghan face to face for three or four months. And I'm covering the sport. I find that you know a little disappointing because we're trying to get the message to the viewer. I know I'm focused, you know, I'm employed by CBS as well as Thursday, Fridays with the uh, Golf Channel to try and you know talk to the viewer at home. But often they'll ask a question, they deserve a decent answer. If I don't have enough information, I, I can't just keep pushing it to the side because once again, you know, look, and I harp on it where I grew up, you know, golf is for everybody, not just the PGA Tour not just the best professionals in the world. It's for everybody that picks up a club that wants to play. Members at my local club here, that every bit is important. They're a viewer. They're a lover of the game. They're a purchaser of equipment. That There's so many people that are important parts to this game. That's where the USGA and the RNA get together. You know, like, let's preserve this, you know, and somehow make it better. So, you know, there's been a lot of bad actors, I guess, in, in the, the last two years that hasn't helped. But I still hold hope for the game that we're going to get through this. But I don't have the answer. I just love to see the best players as they have for, I don't know, years since I was born, just compete against each other and not just the four major championships of the year. Yeah, I think that is, to me, as a fan, the biggest loss is like, it seems like a little less, I mean, obviously the PGA Tour still has a very strong cast of characters, but it's not everyone. And that's kind of a little disappointing as like, you know, a competitor and someone who loves professional sports. But yeah, follow the money trail, right, Frank? Yeah, that's always <laughs> the answer. Yeah. yeah. Adam, you have any more questions for Frank before we let him go here? I do, yeah. One of the things is a slightly different topic, but I was going to ask you about what your thoughts are on the evolution of strategy from when you were playing to now, because we have all these numbers and Mark Brody's book. I know you follow Lou Stagner as well. Are you enjoying it? Is it something that you and your playing days would have taken on board and, and really dove into? If somebody had come to me 40 years ago, you know, when I turned pro when I was 19 and said, hey, you know, hit it down there as far as you can 
and and then play it from there. I would have disagreed with it because we didn't have the database. To me, it would have seemed well, this this doesn't make any sense. So when I see the statisticians, and you know, I think what Mark has done is extremely good. It's not perfect, as we know. For example, like proximity of the hole, I no longer use average proximity. That is because any shot within thirty yards of a green, whether if it's a, a tee shot on a par four or 30 yards of a par five and two counts as proximity. So you've got to start weeding out those outliers to get true average proximity. So that's one stat that I don't use average proximity. I'll use it, you know, wedges and nine irons and all that. There's so much good in it, but I don't use it as a predictive tool. But I think it's a great way of evaluating where you're going. And I know all the players are. Eduardo Molinari, Francesco's brother, does a great job taking those stats and does it with a lot of his players that are both in both sides of the Atlantic. His stuff's very, very good. Plus he makes it very golf course centric. I've spoke with Scott Fawcett with regard to his players, even using, you know, Google earth, looking at the various golf courses. Yeah. I I think it's incredible. It's like next level. And it's, for me, it was another thing that took a little while to get used into, get used to the concept, but it's, I think everybody benefits from that. You know, I've even told members here, you know, they'll, they'll bundle two on down and then they realize they can't reach the par four anyway. And you just sort of explain them, well, you know, if you drove it in the bunker, it wouldn't really make any difference, would it? And you're just presuming you can hit the iron in the fairway. So those people haven't just randomly plucked numbers out to flaunt it against the way maybe my generation played. I still think a fairway hit is important, but when you quantify the difference, you also have to get caught up in how the course is set up, how penal the rough is. There's a lot of other things. So you've got to be deep into the weeds. But it's in every sport. I followed Craig O'Shaughnessy, the Australian, who was very much into tennis. He's changed that sport with that because they look at key points, how they played. So baseball, the same thing, you know, where you put your hitters, um, all sports. Yeah, It'd be crazy if our sport didn't. So, yeah. Was there anything when you first started coming across Mark's work and Scott's work was there anything that you, because even Scott will say this, that a lot of players, even before strokes gained, like someone like you who played on tour for a long time, like you figured a lot of stuff out, you know, just by being out there and realizing like, okay, this is going to make me score better. Were there certain things like obviously the tee shot distance stuff was kind of like a game changer because again, everyone was told to just control the ball, use irons off the tee when you need it. But like approach play stuff, like were you someone who always pin hunted no matter what, or you knew like, okay, I can't go after this one. I've got to go on the fat side of the green and not short side myself. Like that couldn't have been that, you know, alien to you of a concept for playing that well for so long. Yeah. The best answer I can give, actually Scott Fawcett gave it to me. He said, what I'm trying to do is shorten the distance. What you learn in 10 to 15 years on tour. Exactly. I'm giving it to a 19 year old now. And that's right. Because to put it into the way in which I would play, you imagine a long par four. I used to cut it a little bit. Water on the right, flag on the right. So it's not that I looked at it and went, well, I'm going to aim, let's see, I've got a three iron in here. I'm going to aim 25 feet left. You sort of just looked at it. The breeze is coming off the left. Maybe there's a flagpole behind on the clubhouse, which is left side of the green. I'm going to start it there and maybe it'll bleed towards the flag. So experience started giving you different targets, but they weren't measurable. So as should be done, 
this generation has taken that to a, another level. They said, well, Tiger Woods didn't aim at the flag there. He aimed at, where did he aim? Did he aim 15 feet, 20 feet? Let's see, it was a nine iron. It was about, it looks about 15 feet. It was a three iron. It looked like it was about 20 feet. So he started to quantify it, which actually makes a lot of sense. So I go back to the answer that he gave me, really, which is you're just shortening that learning curve. Block practice, for example, I even tell same thing with members because they're a great way to sort of try things out. I said, grab a seven iron, just hit 10 shots. And invariably, they're all short of the flag, right? And they're left and right and all over the place. And I'm like, well, number one, it's not enough club. You know, you can see your seven iron doesn't go as far as you think it does. And look, it's 20 to the right, 20 to the left, it's short, it's whatever. What are you getting out of that? Invariably, they'll just, I've got to hit it harder. I'm like, <laughs> that's, that's the answer you got out of that? And I'm like, so let's just grab another one. Like, let's grab a six iron, make a normal swing, and then they, all of a sudden it's 20 to the right, 20 to the left. The short ones are closer to flag high and there's a few just past. I said, already you're better because you've actually learned really what a club does when you miss hit it, where it goes and all that. So once again, it's not just the elite player. It seeps down into the local player, even a chip shot. I, I remember a South African player called John Blaney sadly passed away this year and I had a 15-footer in Europe downhill and you know, I was playing with him in the tournament and I thought I could make it, gunned it, top lip, went about four feet past, missed it coming back. And I remember him saying to me, he said, just because it's 15 feet doesn't mean it has to be made. And that's where stats will tell you, you know, you've got one in four chance of making it. But also it's a quick putt and it's a putt where the green goes this way. It's a game, right? And the game is sucking you into making a bad decision. If you played it, just dead holding speed, it might go in. There's always another hole. So it was stuff that you picked the brains of all the great players, the Nicholases and the Watsons and all that. You tried to learn from them. I think modern analytics just hands you that information now, which is great. Yeah, but it's also leveled the playing field. Like I think there's been a, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, if you think differently, but I think there's been a lot of, like there's three events that stand out to me in the last, you know, 20-ish years that really changed the game. The solid core ball when the Pro V1 came out, the invention or revelation of TrackMan, like kind of proving ball flight laws, and I think Mark Brody's work with strokes gained. Like, I think those three things will be like lines in the sand in golf forever. And I'm just, again, we can't predict the future. I'm just wondering, like, how many more lines in the sand like that can occur? Because, like, those were all major significant. And I'm not even including, like, club technology. Yeah, I was going to say, I would throw the metal wood in as well. Yeah, exactly. And and then, you know, all of the amazing enhancements and understanding club fitting and all that stuff. It just seems like a lot of things that have happened and a lot of knowledge has occurred that is flattened out the game and you said it before it's kind of like this holding pattern so i just yeah i look forward to seeing it but i just you know i wonder what the the line in the sands in the future are going to be yeah i know in other sports like running for example that nike vapor shoe which is what is it 20 millimeter and all the marathon records have been broken and they're like well hang on a minute it's a trampoline effect heard that in golf as well right and they're going to ban that shoe because these world records have been broken so they want it to be about the athlete they want it to be about the players. So once again, equipment, they're still going to sell shoes. People are going to buy shoes. They're going to buy golf balls. They're going to buy clubs. You just don't want to, you know, if you're Tiger Woods, I remember writing an article because I remember playing with him in 2000 
it's probably the only time you could argue that he might have had better equipment than the rest of the players in the field. Because the solid ball was used by Nick Price, for example, in the in the 90s. He got to world number one. Mark O'Meara won two majors in 1998. That's one of the reasons why Tiger started looking at the ball. And then in 2000, he would have beaten anyone anyway. But because he took the initiative to go, this ball is better, um, he boat raced the field and everything. I mean, that's the greatest season I've ever seen. If you want to humiliate the rest of the players playing, and it was just phenomenal. But the impact that Tiger Woods had, everybody, they didn't follow what Nick Price or Mark O'Meara did. They followed what Tiger Woods did. So within 18 months, everybody was using the same type of ball. So it did sort of even the playing field out. But then if they had stayed like that, he probably would have broken Jack Nicholas's record. But then, you know, utility clubs were coming in, lob wedge, the shot, people going with graphite shafts. So even his advantage of being longer and straighter was nullified. Because now people were putting 46-inch drivers in. They were catching up. And rather than him being able to stay ahead like Jack Nicholas for 15 years, people could close the gap on him on 15 years. We just didn't notice as much because he was still winning. But a lot of the gaps were closed during his reign. He was a unique athlete, the way in which he played. Compete better than anyone else and play better than anyone else. That's a really dangerous combination. Yeah, I often think, like, is anyone going to get like someone starting off now, like is anyone going to get to 10 majors? Like that seems a lot harder than it did, right? <laughs> yeah, the easy answer is no right now. And as I was saying, until things just standardize a little bit, because then if you're better than me, you will excel. But as long as there's a new avenue that's created in six months time that's going to benefit me more than you, I'll close the gap. So that's sadly where we are right now. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Well, <laughs> Frank, thank you so much for coming on. We'll let you go now. This is it's usually our cutoff time. We like to do 90-minute shows, and I appreciate you taking the time out of your afternoon. So when do you get started again? When will we see you back on TV? I'm actually going to go down to the Asia-Pacific Amateur, which is at Melbourne in three weeks' time. So I've done that for the last 10 or 12 years. I've always liked watching some of the new talent come along. And it's great. I've seen a lot of good players come through there. Hideki Matsuyama just seems to pop at the top. Ryan Ruffles, I know he hasn't sort of popped through like I thought he was, but he had a seven-inch growing spurt in one season. So, you know, you see pretty much what you guys are talking about. You see what these young players are doing. So I get a head start on the next generation, like the Ludwig Abergs. It's nice to see them when they're raw and they're young. Same with Victor a few years ago. Victor was my pick this year to break through and win a major championship. I thought he'd have a great year. He did everything bar that. But I just love watching the new talent. On one hand, the game is in a great spot because we have enough guys from the back of the Tiger Woods era that want to get into it. But the people at the top, and there's a lot of those, they have an obligation to get the ship back on the road or the sea. Agreed. Well, we look forward to... Uh hearing you and seeing you again on TV. Thanks. Adam, where can everyone find you? Adamyungolf.com. And if you go to forward slash hacks, H-A-C-K-S, you can get a free ebook with some handy tips to fix some faults quite quickly. And John, where can people find you? You can check out my book, The Four Foundations of Golf. Just search on Amazon somewhere. You'll find it. Thanks again for everyone's questions that they sent in for Frank. Appreciate the support and the feedback. We will see you soon with a new episode.